Hello and welcome to episode four of The Wellspring Way, the podcast where each fortnight we chat to an education professional about their career, their expertise and some of the challenges facing colleagues in classrooms right now. We also find time to grill our guests a bit on their own school days. Today I'm joined by an expert in behaviour management in schools, Luke Mitchell. Luke's been part of Wellspring's story right from the very beginning. He's now Head of Behaviour Support for Positive Regard, Wellspring's training and consultancy service that advises schools and organisations working with young people about how to understand and manage challenging behaviour in a compassionate, relational way. He's an advanced team teach tutor, a lead advocate for supporting children who've suffered trauma and loss, a specialist leader of education and an expert in theraplay. Luke, welcome to the Wellspring Way. How's the start of the year gone for you? Hectic is one word to use. Um, not just for me, I think for everybody. Um, it's been really, really busy, which is good. It means a lot of people are getting the support in that they, that they need. But um, yeah, it just feels like it's been really, really full on this year. Probably this year more compared to other years as well. And why do you think that is? Oh, a number of things, isn't it? The society we're living in at the minute, the, the current sort of climate, the, the world uh, as, it, as it is at the minute. Obviously, it's, there was lockdown a few years ago, then we had like a bit of a, a bit part year, I guess, coming back. And then now it's it's on back at it um, yeah so head of behavior at positive regard yeah for people that aren't aware of positive regard and what it does tell us a little bit about it uh, so I'll start off I suppose by describing the service rather than the concept because there's two little bits there and I suppose people get mixed up with that um, the service positive regard is a behavior SEND mental health and well-being support service for schools children's services residential care settings and a number of sort of other just anybody working with challenging young people really um, and it, it started out in Barnsley um, Basically, what happened is I was working in a, an outstanding SMH provision with Dave, who you had on the on the last podcast. Um, and the local authority used to commission behaviour support in the schools to help reduce exclusion. Um, and they used to we used to go out into the schools, support them, behaviour reviews, just working with the schools really prevent the kids from being excluded or being placed in SMH provisions. Like any sort of good funding, that it disappeared, um, and schools still wanted to know what they could do to support the young people. So uh, Dave at the time was, was was my boss, and he said to me, we, we still need to go into these schools and help them out, even though there was no funding there. So um, we did that out of professional generosity, went into the schools in Barnsley, and, and we're helping out again, which was great. But that meant that then I wasn't in my school anymore. Um, right. Schools around the authority and other authorities then started to catch wind of what we were doing um, and decided they wanted a piece of the action as well. Uh, and that's where it started to develop. And it needed a bit more planning then rather than Dave and I just going, right, let's go into these schools and let's go into that school. So that's kind of how the service grew, Positive Regard. Uh, and it's now grown to a service that uh, last year we supported over 450 schools, uh, six children's services, a couple of residential care settings. Um, and it's not just me that does it as well. There's, there's 34 of us now there's a whole team of us that um, hand-picked um, then trained and developed and, and they all work in schools which is one of the beauties of the service I think that's kind of it's uh, I suppose it's uniqueness is that every single member of staff that does it has a job in a school so they're still doing it day to day they're still yeah. practicing they're still relevant it's still fresh and they get out there supporting and, and helping out um, we chose the name positive regard I guess because fundamentally it's values or unconditional positive regard sits alongside what we do and it's, it's at the heart of everything we do rather than sits alongside it uh, Carl Rogers was the chap who came up with unconditional positive regard the theory of and he was a humanitarian psychologist working with some really tough clients 
and his team of therapists were trying to do therapy with rapists and murderers, that sort of stuff. Uh, and they were finding therapy really difficult to do with that person uh, because they couldn't see them as anything other than what they were. And I can imagine that's quite difficult and quite challenging when, when you're presented with someone like that. And one of the theories that, his, that he said that you had to remove that judgment when working with young people. And we just really liked that concept and we started using it in, in our school at the time. But yeah, so we, we kind of take and we, we like the name, the theory, the whole sort of relational based aspect to it. And, and henceforth, we named the service positive regard. So unconditional positive regard. I think that's a really, really difficult concept for people to kind of get their heads around. So nobody's saying that you have to like every single person that you're around or every single person that you're with. But you have to care enough to be your genuine self and authentic enough to to be explicit and open about this. So there's there's young people that I work with, for example, that um, I really struggle with um, to build a relationship and to connect with, but I care about them enough to make sure that everyone else around me knows that. I support them when I can support them. But if that young person starts to become defensive and is a a trigger for my own stresses and my own behaviour, that it's really clear in that young person's plan that I'm not the best person to support them in that moment in time. But I have to be a professional, have unconditional positive regard, care enough to know that I'm actually not the right person at that time um, so then I would um, I would step aside and let somebody else support and get in there um, the other sort of side of it is the um, if a kid tells me to F off one day mm-hmm. the next day they come in I don't hold it against them that told me to F off so you you have to strip that judgment away strip that emotion away as I, go, I suppose um, respond with a smile on our face with genuineness with openness but don't let them get away with it. We still make sure that we pick it up and we teach them how to express themselves in a more socially acceptable way the next time. Um, yeah. That's really honest of you to kind of say that, yeah. that sometimes it is really... Because ch- I think you hear it, this unconditional positive regard, and your instinct is almost to consider, well, people doing that must be saints. But you're saying you don't have to be a saint to be able to treat people with unconditional no, no, positive No, no, nobody's a superhuman, are they? You've just, you've just got to be honest and open. And again, that's part of it. The part of the theory is being, is being honest and being open, um, talking to each other. Um, yeah, it's, it's a tough gig. We always say as well, it's the, the kids who are the hardest to love are the ones who need loving the most. And you've really got to be resilient, keep coming back every day. But that's hard for you. You get stressed. You you succumb to like secondary stress or compassionate fatigue. So if you work with a kid who is uh, emotionally draining or feels uh, neglected or feels uh, under threat, you walk home at the end of the day feeling neglected, feeling abused, feeling under threat yourself as a member of staff. I can imagine. And coming back in the next day to work with that young person is, is really, really challenging. But we can't hold any of that against them. Otherwise... We're not going to be that person that they need. Um, yeah. There's a phrase that I use whenever we do support and at the end of the training, I always say, be the person you needed when you were younger. Um, and it's nice. a phrase that kind of sticks in my head and resonates with me. It's something that I suppose I have to think about on my toughest days because you do rock up and you do feel tired and worn down and stressed. But yeah, having a little phrase like that, knowing that these kids need somebody in their life, an emotionally available adult to support them uh, is, is important. Yeah. it's a, I mean, from a parent's perspective, it's something that I kind of try and teach myself and tell myself all behavior is communication she's just trying to communicate something to me and it's if you can try and grasp that it makes it a little bit more bearable yeah uh, that's something that we have to work on a lot with schools and, and services I guess that are working with young people that behavior is communication um, and so when we talk about behavior is communication we, we need to be able to understand 
how the young person's expressing themselves, and they're expressing themselves often through a piece of challenging behaviour. Our goal is to understand this communication and almost translate the behaviour. Um, that's something that we do a lot of work on and we focus in with staff on how to translate a young person's behaviour. Um, what we tend to find though with behaviour is often we can react to behaviour directly, which doesn't necessarily translate it or meet the need. So if a if a child throws a chair over, a very typical response is to say, pick up the chair. If an yeah. adult throws a chair over, a very typical response is to say, are you okay, what's the problem? And you try to dive down to the, what's behind the behaviour. Um, another way I get this across to people in terms of that behaviour is a, uh, a form of communication is to think about if, if a child was in a wheelchair and they refused to walk, would you punish them? Absolutely not. I'm glad you responded like that. Um, <laughs> if you had a blind child who couldn't read and refused to read without access to Braille, would you punish them? Of course not. So what if you had a child with communication difficulties in your classroom that was showing you challenging behaviour and refused to behave? Would you punish that? Well, most people, I, know, yeah. I know what the answer should be. Most people, but I know yeah. What, I know that I've fallen into patterns with and my And so have I as well. The first six years of my career was spent telling kids off if I'm going to be right. But yeah, that young person who's showing you that piece of behaviour is trying to tell you something. And, and most schools, they want to say no to that last one. No, we don't react to it. But we often do. If a young person sat there, even low level, swinging on the chair, refusing to get on with the work, they're trying to tell you something. They're trying to tell you, I'm bored, I'm fed up, I'm unhappy, I don't like this, I'm really worried about my mum, do I have to wear these smelly clothes again tomorrow? I just don't like school. They're trying to tell you something and surely our goal as a practitioner, what the point, one of the points we try to get across through the services, that you need to try and figure out what the problem is. Now that's difficult it, um, it takes time it takes effort but that's what we look at we look at how to translate that behavior so we can meet the need in the heat of the moment rather than using a one approach to deal with that one piece of behavior because like i've just said that a kid will swing on the chair for a variety of reasons we've not even started to touch on sensory need or anything there there's just there's so many reasons a kid behaves the way they do so yeah, I think people enjoy the service or use the service because it, it, it can open up people sort of, I suppose, uh, mindsets and opinions and, and give them new ideas to support and translate behaviour. Look at behaviour slightly different rather than look at it as something that we need to squish and use yeah. a, a deterrent to sort of just stop in the heat in a moment. Yeah, and I, I guess your own kind of issues come into play, like you've said. Like, you know, if you're, if you're tired or you've got, you feel stressed and under pressure, you know, it's, it's hard being a teacher, isn't it? Um, you've got a class full. I guess you, you reach for what you know in that moment. Um, yeah, what's natural to you? I, I, like I said, in the first six years of my career, I had no, no sort of training that I've had now. I didn't work along psychotherapists to start with. I didn't work in specialist provisions to start with. I was just presented with challenging behaviour. And my mum used to deal with me by telling me off or shouting at me. Yeah. And that was kind of what I was doing in my practice with the kids. And on the majority, on the whole, I had pretty good behaviour in my classes. Apart from, from a couple of kids, there was always the same couple of kids that it, it really didn't work for. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Yet, I continued to do it over and over again. Um, when I look back at my practice then and I, I look back at my practice now, I much prefer where I am now. Uh, I have better relationships with young people and overall I have better behaviour, but it's a lot harder now to do what I do. Um, there's, there's there's more positive moments, I guess, but I, I got a lot better behaviour more of the time when I reacted like that. But it, it doesn't sit right with me anymore, especially since having my own kids. Like, I don't want to shout at children or to constantly punish them to make them behave because ultimately I'm making the kid behave through fear um, yeah. rather than through connecting, understanding and, and trying to support the young person. Um, 
I just mentioned about my daughter then. I'm trying to be relational based with her when I'm bringing her up, which again is really, really tough because I just want to sometimes do that sort of punitive thing and take something off of her because that's my natural response. But I want her to behave in a way that's socially acceptable when she goes to school. But I'm teaching her to do that as a parent now. So like, for example, just running down the corridor. I don't want her to walk because she's scared of being told off. I want her to walk because that's what you should do. It's a social yeah. acceptable behaviour. And I'm yeah. teaching her that now. When we go to the Aldi, I'm holding her hand. I'm walking around. I'm giving her, she's only two, like I said, but yeah. I'm giving her those instructions now. And equally, this might be a little bit controversial, I guess. I don't want her to behave to re- and come home with loads of stickers on a T-shirt for walking nicely. Like, I just want her to walk nicely. I want her to be praised, obviously, but more intrinsic praise, like fist bumps, high fives, well done, that's nice walking, than, than to come home with loads of stickers. It's nice to be rewarded, but I just feel you get more motivation out of a, a, an intrinsic reward, I guess. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's what we want, isn't it, for whether they're children in our class or our own children. We want them to do the right things, make the right choices, because... Yeah, it's the right thing. That, it's the right to thing do. to do, not because they're scared. But that's yeah. behaviour's taught. You have to be taught that. If you haven't been taught that, how do you, you come into a classroom, somebody gives you a piece of work, you don't like it, you get stressed. The reaction that you've seen to deal with stress is to shout at somebody or argue or throw something and you just you're modeling that um and if, then if we model as teachers that we shout at them when we're stressed then they just and it just carries on um it's tough we've got to model something else like i said behavior is taught right if you if a kid can't catch a ball what do you do you spend time with them throwing a ball with them and Teach so them they can catch, catch a ball it, yeah. yeah you break it down for them you show them where to put their hands if they can't read all right what do you do you sit down with them and show them how to do it absolutely you scaffold it you support them you teach them if they can't behave what do you do Show them how to behave better. That's what understand we what they're doing. That's what we should be doing. We should be teaching behaviour. But again, it takes a lot more time and effort. It's actually much easier to rely on a system to do it for you. So I'm talking about a punitive system on a wall, a traffic light system, a minutes off break time system. Now, again, it sounds like I'm anti-system when I say stuff like that. I'm not because I understand and I've used them in my practice that they help create consistency, high expectation, clarity, the visual aids. My issue with them is that I always found them to be really rigid so they don't give enough flexibility to those those two kids that I was telling you about when I was very heavily reliant on behaviourist and sanction approaches in my class is there was always two kids that were in the red traffic light system. And again, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing yeah. over and over again, expecting a different result. Um, and I guess there's that thing, isn't there, that kids have, who are very lucky, privileged, whatever you want to call it, in terms of their home life and how well supported they are and how well they've been modelled good behaviour, well... When they're misbehaving a little bit, it's often about trying to push boundaries and find out where the boundary is. But if it's children that have never had that support and have got all kinds of horrendous things going on in the home life that we can't imagine, then it's a different it's a different issue, isn't it? They need to know we're a safe adult. They need to know we're going to come back every day. We're going to be there for them. We're not going to let them down because adults might have let them down in the past. Yeah. They need to know that we care. They need to know that we understand. Importantly, though, they need to know that we are going to put boundaries in place and rules in place and something's going to be done if something goes wrong. What that something is then um, depends, I guess, on... Um, on, on your approach and your response that something doesn't have to be sanction based that something can be a consequence of some sort for example a logical consequence of putting right what's gone wrong the consequence might simply be 
we need to have a conversation about what's gone on and teach you how to express yourself in a more socially acceptable way. Um, there's a lot of skill that comes into doing this as well. So if you're teaching a young person, let's say, for example, a kid smashes windows with a chair, right? that's quite a high tariff behaviour. Yep. You've got to teach that young person that that's not acceptable. Okay. Mm-hmm. How do you do that with a young person who gets so angry that they smash windows? Simply excluding them or putting a detention in place won't teach them how to express themselves in a socially acceptable way again. What's the kid saying who smashes a window? He's saying, I'm angry, I'm cross, I'm frustrated, I'm unhappy. So we've got to give them a strategy that's more socially acceptable than the thing that they were doing, but equally achievable. So if you've got a kid who's angry, quite often what we do in the classroom is we say to the kid, next time you're angry, come and tell a teacher. I don't know if you've ever been angry before, Elizabeth. But I've been angry a lot, yeah. yeah. You can't go up to somebody and go, I am angry. No. It's and impossible. Yeah. And it's that thing of, you know, tell someone who's angry to calm down. Has anyone ever calmed down? In the <laughs> this is often a strategy that we give to young people. It doesn't work. And then we rely on that sanction to deal with them. Whereas also just a couple of other things if you've got a really angry kid who's potentially smashing a window and you say to him right go and use the mood board next time you're angry to make a conscious decision to use the top part of your brain to go and move your face from the calm bit to an angry face is is pretty much impossible the reaction that they're showing you is is something that they deem as the right choice and a, and the right and it's going to get their needs met um, so I also hate the phrase when we say to kids you're making the wrong choice make the right one because to them that might be the right choice how on earth do you know what the right choice is for that kid but we need to still that I'm not for one minute suggesting that we accept children throw chairs through windows yeah. but we've got to teach that young person a more socially acceptable way that's achievable to get to, to, to express their feeling and emotion so I'll, I'll use that one as an example because I'm thinking about a kid now that I worked with um, who we had from primary all the way through to key stage 40 or 11 he, um, he used to throw chairs through windows when he got really really angry oh. We tried a number of strategies when he was angry to help him not throw chairs through windows and none of them worked. And one day we came up with the idea, and this is going to, people are going to hate me when I say this, but we asked him or we tried to train him to throw the chair down the corridor. Wait a minute, you're teaching kids to throw chairs? Well, I'd much rather throw the chair down the corridor than at a window. Obviously, after about a few days of that happening, we were like, whoa, this, is, this can still be unsafe. It didn't cost us much money. It wasn't a criminal damage this time, so it kind of reducing the risk. But equally, we're not having you throw chairs down the corridor forever. Yeah. We're just diluting the strategy down to something that's more achievable. So what happened now is this kid no longer picked up a chair and threw it through the window. He'd leave the room, pick up the nearest chair that was to him and throw it down the corridor. So what we started to do then is work on the fact that he was doing the same thing every time leaving the room picking up the nearest chair we used some of the understanding that we have around sort of regulating young people and that pressure helps you regulate and that sort of stuff and we we purchased some heavy furniture and we put it outside the class door and we trained the kid to go and pick up the heavy furniture the heavy chair Mm -hmm. slam it on the floor and then sit on the chair. And what he was actually getting from that when you dig down is that one of one of the one of the key associations you learn when you when you're really young is that deep pressure and our repetitive rhythmic activity helps equal safety and regulate you, mm-hmm. um, which puts your lid back on basically. We taught him to pick up the chair, which was heavy, yeah. pressure, slam it on the floor, heavy pressure and then sit on it and actually what it created it was almost like a Pavlov's dog moment for all the staff because when we heard this on the floor we could see this young person was distressed dysregulated staff could then poke the head out of the door and just say you okay buddy yes somebody will be with you in a minute well done for using your strategy so now he's been praised for showing I am angry in a more socially acceptable way windows are not being broken chairs are not being thrown down the corridor um, and we've got a much more uh, socially acceptable behaviour do we want him to do that for the rest of his life absolutely not um 
and we'll, we'll keep supporting them and keep tweaking that until we can get it to something that is more socially acceptable. But changing behaviour don't happen overnight. Like, no. It takes Gosh, that's time. A, that's that a was great, a three-year journey with that kid. Great story. I mean? three-year Really journey. interesting. Because yeah. obviously the, the standard response, I think, if most people heard there was a kid throwing chairs, well, he needs expelling. That would be the kind yeah, of... Yeah, absolutely. Crush, crush that behaviour kind of thing. But all you do is move it, don't you? You yeah. just move the problem. It's... it's, it's it's teaching them how yeah. to express themselves in a more socially acceptable way. We keep saying behaviour is communication. We've got to teach them how to say, I'm angry yeah. in a more socially acceptable way. There's more to it than just that as well, the wraparound stuff. So there's logical consequences associated with that, like I said, which is repairing the damage. So he used to have to repair the windows. Did he do it at his break time? No. He did it when the time was right for him and when the time was right for the facility management worker or the care team, or the caretaker. Um, and they'd work together and they'd work with each other and they'd be having conversations, they're doing it, but teaching come on, mate, this is not acceptable and so on and so forth. I know that you get angry. It's okay to be angry because it absolutely is. It's not okay to put windows through. Yeah. And we teach them what to do instead. Do you come up against a lot of um, resistance when you sometimes when you go into school and you're trying to teach this stuff? Um, so the schools that are asking us to go in, obviously, are trying an alternative approach and it's not working. Hence, therefore, they ask us to go in and support them. So they initially they can be more receptive there are still key pockets of staff in the schools that that aren't receptive and we have to do a lot of work around changing their mind um or not changing their mind really because we never do that like we don't we just poke a couple of people in a way so what we never do is we never walk into a school and say remove your systems stop punishing kids because that'd be really wrong of us because yeah. we don't know the kids and for 70 80 percent of kids in school those systems might be effective for what they're not effective for is that 20 30 percent that are still on the system mm -hmm. so we go in and we help upskill them and support them and help them with their mindset so they don't have to rely on a system um, one of the biggest difficulties i find with this elizabeth is is the mindset of the world isn't set up in a way for relational based approaches so like if you do something wrong in society there's an instant punishment associated with your behavior usually so if you go and rob a bank or steal a car there's you're getting locked up for it and obviously we have to prepare young people for the world as they move forward um but i, I always ask people on training this is this is one of the way that i guess i, I can poke people is I, I say to people with this with this mindset that there needs to be a punishment is do you behave the way you do because there's a punishment in place so, I, so for example, if an elderly person walked past this building, she dropped a purse, would you steal the purse? Of course not. No, why? Because it's wrong. How do you know it's wrong? Because it's it's stealing and it's against my moral code to do that. How, who's who's programmed that into you? Oh, gosh, we're getting philosophical now, aren't Your we? life, your experiences, <laughs> yeah. what, you've, what you've been taught... Which yeah. again, the point I'm making is you've yeah. been taught that that's not the right thing to do, where some young people haven't been taught that that's not the right thing to do. For them, that might be the right thing to do. I'm going to steal that purse because I can feed my family. Does that oh, make yeah, it acceptable? Absolutely. absolutely not, but they need to be taught there are other ways that we can, we, can, we can go about sort of our reactions and responses. So if the elderly person dropped a purse, would you give her the purse back? Yes. Would you expect her to give you 10 quid out of it? No, I'd expect her to say thank you. So she's not. So you're not. You're not doing it for a reward. You're doing it again because morally, based on what you've been taught, is the right and wrong thing to do. You, you're behaving yeah. based on what you've been taught. So yeah, we do come up against a lot of challenge, uh, but that's the, it's good. The, the challenge needs to be there. Yeah. And I, I always say to people as well that I'm no like I'm no saint either. Like 
I still am behaviorist at heart. I really, really am. When my, I've got two stepchildren, uh, 13 and 14, when they refuse to go to bed at half past eight and then they refuse to go at nine o'clock and they refuse to go at half nine and 10 o'clock, I don't start acting therapeutically or relationally based. I'm like, just go to bed, yeah. I've got to go to work in the morning. Uh, and that's because it's, it's natural to respond like that. I just know that if, if I am responding like that, right, I tend to find I get two outcomes with kids. I either get conflict and they argue back with me mm-hmm. or I get compliance but they complain through fear, like I mentioned earlier, and that doesn't sit right with me anymore. There's the opposite end of the approach as well, um, Elizabeth, where I think people try to be, they try to be relational-based or trauma-informed, for example, and they don't quite grasp it. And they almost, they put in lots of support, but they drop their boundaries and their challenge and their expectations. And what we do there is we almost become permissive and cajoling in our practice. And that's not what positive regard is or relational based or even trauma informed practice at its heart isn't that. Um, What happens if you do that and you become, I suppose, too supportive and drop the challenge and expectation is that kids often get away with stuff then because we're not putting boundaries and expectations in place. Where when you've been truly relational based, you you find a balance of the two. So we're working with people rather than doing it to them or doing it for them. Yeah, I mean, Dave's always said that, hasn't he? That you you hear it. It, it, This doesn't mean that kids can get away with behaving badly at all. Um, Yeah, but I think people hear it and that's that's the mistake they make. Yeah. Right then, I think we might move on to a little bit about what your own school days were like. Oh my days! I hope my teachers aren't listening to this. <laughs> I always, <laughs> I always look to you when I deliver a, a piece of training to see if any of my ex-teachers are on, because they would literally stand up and go, "How on earth are you delivering training around the other behaviour?" Because <laughs> I wasn't the best behaved kid. If I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Right then, are you ready for a quick fire round? Oh yeah, go for it. Yeah. Ready? School dinners or packed lunches? School dinners all day. I still have them now. <laughs> um, inset day or school trip? School trip, 100%. Really? Rather than a day off? Yeah, residential care, residential setting, even better. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Food tech or resistant materials? <laughs> it sounds really, if my partner's listening to this, she's going to laugh at this. Resistant materials? I can't even build an IKEA wardrobe. But I used to love doing resistant materials. <laughs> Do you know what? I used to love that smell. Oh, you know, yeah. like the kind oh, the of acrylic or the sawdust oh, and yeah. all that. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, English or science? Science. Which science did you like best? Biology. Football or athletics? Oh, I love both, but football is at my heart, I guess, yeah. Well-planned revision or last-minute cramming? Last-minute cramming. Always. Keeps you on your toes. Yeah, yeah. Got to have a deadline to do anything, haven't you? Yeah, right. And finally, we ask everybody this. Okay. Um, If you had a magic wand and could do absolutely anything, don't worry about money, don't worry about practicalities, what thing would you change in the education system to make it better for young people? Um, for all schools to have access to the high level of skill that they need to support the young people of today. So I'm talking about psychotherapists on site, uh, instant access to a clinical psychologist, for example, just, just, just really skilled staff that are in, they've got great skilled staff, good leaders, good teachers, good yeah. TAs, um, but just that other level of skill that we need to support the young people's needs today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Give them all a, access to something like that. And that's a great one. I think, to be honest, we could do with that across society, actually. <laughs> Everywhere, could, yeah. Every business, to, every service. To decent have, mental health yeah, support. Absolutely. Yeah, appropriate today, because we're talking on World Mental Health Day as well. So that was a good, oh, that's yeah. a good answer wow, for that yeah. one. See, I knew that. I just put that one in there. <laughs> right. Thanks so much no for taking worries. the time to join us today. That's been um, a brilliant chat. Really enjoyed it. Um, 
And thanks to you, the listener, for joining us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. We'll be talking to Katie Hartson, who'll be sharing her knowledge on training teachers and what she thinks makes the perfect teacher. Till then, take care, and we'll see you next time.